Genesis 28. We're going to look at a message called Jacob's Ladder, Genesis 28. Let's pray one more time. Father God, as we are locating the Bible text tonight, thank you that your word is inspired, literally breathed out by God and profitable for all of our lives, for every facet. It can instruct, it can correct, it can train in righteousness, it can equip us, it can look deep into our hearts and discern where we're at. And tonight we want to just be an open book. We want to be open to your book, Lord, to your word that you've breathed out. So just uh, we pray every distraction would be set aside, every weight that we've carried into this place, um, even the things that may ensnare and stumble some tonight would be dealt with. So we just want to pray that you would have your way among us tonight. Speak to our hearts and give us ears to hear what you would say. And as Pastor Chris prayed, a heart to obey it. In Jesus' name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Okay, Genesis 28. This is Jacob's ladder. We pick it up at verse 1. Genesis 28, verse 1. So Isaac, his name means laughter, called Jacob, Genesis 28, 1, and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Now, Isaac is the dad, and we know that dad thought he was on his deathbed. Last time we were together, dad thought he was dying. And when you think you're dying, your priorities change. When you think, uh, for some of you, if you've had a near-death experience, if you've had a close call, if you've had a brush with death, your life changes. Because you realize, you know what? We're all really a heartbeat away. The glass can crash. Our hearts can stop. We don't have guarantees. And Isaac thought he was on his deathbed, but when we looked at actually the biblical data and we tried to measure you know, his lifespan and everything, we realized that he probably had 40 plus years more to live. But he thought he was on his deathbed. And so when he thought he was on his deathbed, he did something that, you know, you could say, well, maybe the motivation was right, but what he did was wrong. He tried to bless the wrong son. He already knew the prophecy. He already knew that the younger would be served by the older. Jacob, even though he was the second born of the twins, was actually the one that was selected by God. But Isaac was fighting that plan. And Isaac got what we might call in uh, modern language, he got duped. He got duped by his wife. He got deceived by his wife in cahoots with his younger son. And they stole the blessing. And he gave the blessing to Jacob. And once he gave that blessing, he realized it couldn't be undone. He noted or he, he, he realized that it was God's providential hand. God was uh, overseeing or even superseding what he planned to do. And just so we all realize this, and I think we do, when our plans try to battle God's plans, ultimately God's plans always win out. Amen? Amen. You can learn that the easy way or the hard way. You're going to find a family tonight that learns it the hard way. Now, Isaac is an older man, and he's starting to get it. So notice in verse 1 of chapter 28, he's blessing the right son now. He blesses Jacob to give a blessing in the patriarchal sense. When, when the, these Bible characters give a blessing, this is a very significant moment. This is almost like maybe you could say a, a speech that you would give at a wedding. It's, it's a very formal ceremony, but it ha, it's even deeper than that because even speeches that we give at weddings or blessings that we might give, they don't seem to carry the same weight that they did back in these days. When you gave a formal blessing, it carried a great weight. And I'll just say to you, those of you who are a little bit older and you have access to children and grandchildren, it's good to speak blessings into their life. It's good to even charge them to do the right thing. Notice that Isaac in verse 1, he called Jacob, he blessed him, but he also charged him. And the charge was very clear. He said, please do not marry a wife from the people of Canaan. This would be like us, like a older Christian saying to a younger Christian in a family, please do not marry an unbeliever. Please don't do that. But he's cute. I know. There's a lot of cute people around. But make sure that he is a believer. And I would even say make sure he's a strong believer. Because then he's going to have, hopefully, the values that you care about. So back at the end of uh, chapter 27, 
Rebecca, as we move from Isaac, Isaac's starting to get it. He's blessing the right kid, and that's good, and that's a change from what he tried to do. But Rebecca's been running around, and uh, she's, she's a pretty busy lady. So everybody look at verse 41 of chapter 27. Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which the father, his father had blessed him, 41. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now when the words of her elder son Esau were reported to Rebekah, I don't know how she found out, maybe by a servant, she sent and called her younger son Jacob and said to him, behold, your brother Esau is consoling himself concerning you. He's making himself feel better with this thought. I'm going to kill him. Now, if that's a consoling thought to some of you, you may want to seek out some counseling. All right? I'll feel better when I deal with him. And maybe deep in Esau's mind, because you know Esau was a carnal man. He, we see in Hebrews 12, he was a sinful man. He didn't really care about spiritual things. Maybe Esau was thinking, this is the way I'll get my birthright and blessing back. If he's dead, he can't have the blessing anymore. But you know what? That's not going to work either. But Esau bore a grudge. And in Hebrews 12, it's described as a root of bitterness that can spring up and defile many, many people. And Esau carried that grudge and he consoled himself. And the Hebrew word for console is nakam. And it means to breathe strongly. Have you ever been there before? <laughs> Jacob. Jacob. I'm going to kill him. Now, my mom used to do this when my sister and I were in church. We called it the Italian vein. Here's how the Italian vein works. We'd be in the Roman Catholic church when we were little, and we all sat in the church, even when we were little kids, with our mom. And our mom faithfully took, took us there. Dad was missing in action. And so she'd sit between me and my sister. My sister's about, uh, I don't know, 17, 18 months older, 19 months older. I remind her of that constantly. You know, you're older, and you always will be. Anyway, so when we were in church, we'd start grabbing at each other, and, we, and my mother's mouth would barely even move, and it'd be something like this. Just the vein would speak. When we get home, I'm going to kill you. So anyway, curses were spoken in the church, and <laughs> from my mother to us. Just kidding. Anyway. So she would console herself. <laughs> well, this is, what, this is what Esau was doing. He was making himself feel better with the thought that he could kill Jacob. And I know this is something that most siblings don't feel towards other siblings. No threats are given in households represented here tonight, I'm sure. It was a joke. Anyway. But Rebecca's running around. So she shares the plan. She says, look, he's planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, 43, chapter 27, obey my voice, arise and flee to Haran, to my brother Laban, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury subsides. Now, mom, mom says a few days, but it, it's not going to be a few days. It, it's going to be many, many, many days. In fact, when Jacob travels to Haran, Haran, from where he's at right now, is 500 miles away. No motor scooters, no motorized skateboards. You're going on horseback, donkey, or you're hoofing it with your own feet. And the biblical record seems to indicate that mom never saw Jacob again. She dies in chapter 35. We have no record that she ever saw him again. Here's a thought. Rebecca's, you know, She's been running around and she's been, she's been doing things and, and we could weigh her motives in a number of different ways. But here's the thing. Sin will always cost you more than you think it will. Oh, in a couple of days, it'll be cool. In a couple of days, this will blow over. No, it won't. It didn't. Now, Esau held the grudge for a long time. And finally, these two brothers, and we'll find this later in Genesis, they do reconcile. And it's a beautiful scene later in the book. But for mom, she was in the background manipulating everything. 
And, you know, maybe she thought she was doing it for noble reasons, but there's a lack of faith here. And sin will cost you more than you think it will cost you. And Jacob's been on board, of course, with the whole thing. And uh, he's going to flee. Now, Rebecca has to, has to have a way to convince Isaac to send away Jacob. Why would dad do that? Why would he let him go? Well, here's what she says. So she says, notice, until 45, 27, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him, then I shall send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? But in fact, that, the very thing that she didn't want to happen, happened. She was bereaved with both of them. Jacob left. He was gone for 20 years. She dies in the meantime. And Esau left and went and lived in the area of Edom. And so they were both gone. She lost them both. Everything she was trying to avoid with her own background manipulation happened anyway. And that's when we have to be careful for us control freaks. Can I get a witness tonight? Anybody, anybody want to confess? Control freaks, right? We want to control everything. And sometimes in our efforts to do so, I know a lot of you did not confess because I know there's many more of you <laughs> in here tonight. But anyway, in her effort to do that, what she feared ha would happen, happened. And Rebecca said to Isaac, here's her excuse for sending Jacob away, 46. She said, I'm tired of living because of the daughters of Heth, these Canaanite women that Esau married. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? She says, man, this is, I'm gonna just be depressed. I don't even know why I should live. If he marries a, one of these I know mother-in-laws mother and daughter-in-laws is tough enough, but these are Canaanite women and it's just not good. And so this is enough for Isaac. He says, you know, in fact, yeah, this is a problem. So in chapter 28, verse one, that's why Isaac is calling Jacob. He's blessing him. He's charging him. And then he's sending him off. So look at 28.2. He says, arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban. Laban is the uncle, your mother's brother. So Jacob gets this call, and now he really has no choice but to depart. He's stolen the birthright, he's stolen the blessing, and now he has to leave home. And we don't always put together the consequences of our actions, and now he's stuck. Mom's saying, you need to go because your brother wants to kill you. Dad's saying, you need to go because you need to find a wife from the right people group. And this is important because remember, Jacob will become the line through which who comes? Messiah. And so there's a protection of the messianic line. And overarching the whole thing the whole time is God. God weaves a tapestry even when we're messing everything up. He's so majestic in his attributes, he can even take all the things that we do and work it together for good. And off to Uncle Laban, Jacob will go. And Jacob is going to discover, if you think about the players, you got Esau, carnal man. You got Isaac, he's starting to, re to realize God's plan. You got Jacob, the conniver, who's paying some consequences and he's now going to go to Uncle Laban. And Uncle Laban is going to do to Jacob worse than he did to his brother. Uncle Laban is going to be a total deceiver. In fact, uh, Jacob's going to have to work, what, 14 years for the bride that he really wants. He wants to marry Rachel. He gets duped into marrying Leah on the wedding night. Dad does the old switcheroo, which had to be a shock the next morning. Who are you? <laughs> what just happened here? And then he has to work another seven years for her. And in Uncle Laban, Jacob, everybody with me, Jacob will see himself in his uncle. And sometimes what God allows us to do, this is a practical point, is he allows us to encounter people who allow us to see ourselves in a mirror before us. And, and we get around these people and they're a lot like us and that's usually why they annoy us a lot. It's going to be an honest evening, <laughs> right? And then it clicks with us. Oh, my goodness. That person's a lot like me. What's happening here? This is called God's poetic justice. The Bible says if you live by the sword, you will what? Die by the sword. If you live by lies, you will be lied to. If you're a deceiver, you will end up being deceived. This is not karma. 
Okay, students of the Bible, this is called sowing and reaping. This is God's poetic justice. This is how it works. And so this is also how God shapes a man or a woman. We get a close-up look at our own faults, and this is usually how we change. And Jacob, one of the players in our drama, is going to learn through the school of hard knocks. And so dad says to Jacob, you got the players, Rebecca's the other one that's been running around, and she's going to pay a higher price. And he says, uh, dad to son now, may God Almighty, verse 3, that's El Shaddai, if you're curious, there's only the second use that I know of in Genesis of El Shaddai. It's the translation of God Almighty. Just take El is God and Almighty is Shaddai. So you got God Almighty. Bless you. Here's dad's blessing and make you fruitful and multiply you that you become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham. Abraham is Isaac's dad. To you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. So all the players are named here. This is going to be, you know, within the, the proper lines and so forth. And off he goes to travel, and I think this is probably something like a three-week journey. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob. Remember, the tent walls are thin, so I don't know if he's back behind one of the curtains huffing and puffing. But Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. In other words, don't do what Esau did. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father, Isaac. He called him in and said, take a hike. No, I just added that. Just kidding. But Esau went to Ishmael, notice, and married besides the wives that he had. This is, this is just right in your Bible, dumb. This is dumb. He's just going to add another problem to the problem. He says, oh, it appears that dad's not happy with my wives, as though he didn't already know that. As, all, as though he didn't already know that he was not supposed to marry Canaanite women. He knew the problems in the household. He probably had those hard family discussions at the dinner table. Can you tell your wife to please use a fork? You know, that kind of stuff. He knew there were problems. But still, he goes and he compounds the problem by marrying an Ishmaelite. And that can't please dad because Ishmael is the brother who used to harass dad when he was a little kid. Isaac's still in counseling over Ishmael. <laughs> and now he goes and marries an Ishmaelite woman, thinking he's going to make the problem better. Sometimes when we're trying to solve a problem, and, and again, we're doing it in the flesh instead of the spirit, we make it worse. So Esau went to Ishmael. He married besides the wives that he had. He adds a third here, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth, and so, again, another lesson about doing things the wrong way. And Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And uh, Jacob now, with you know, the family in the rearview mirror, the breathing threats of brother, he moves on to this new location. And he came, verse 11, to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and lay down in that place. Now he had gone a distance and the sun was going down. And I'm assuming at this point that Jacob is traveling alone. We're not told that there's a caravan. I don't know if he has any other people with him. I don't know if he has a servant with him. I don't know if he's completely solo. But Jacob's making his way and the sun's going down. And he decides to set up camp. And he's, as he decides to set up camp, it's obvious he doesn't have much because he's using a rock pillow. Now, I have problems with pillows. Anybody out there have problems with pillows? I tend to be a uh, stomach sleeper. I don't know what it is. It must go back to crib days and whatever, but I haven't tried to figure it out. But anyway, I flip over, and all the time I'm tweaking my neck. And so Jacob uses, I don't understand this. He must have been really tired. He used a rock as a pillow. He started a company later. It was called rockpillow.com. Anyway, 
And he was literally between a rock and a hard place. Here's why. Brother wants to kill him. He may be traveling all alone. He doesn't know what is in the future for him. And he's got a rock for a pillow. That's a bad week. And here he is. He's put, he puts this thing under his head and he lays down at this place and the sun goes down. What do you think was on Jacob's heart and mind when he tried to sleep that night? He may have been tired. He may have been poured out. What do you, where do you think his thoughts might circulate? Maybe back to mom and dad. Maybe he replayed the scene of how he duped his brother. Maybe he's thinking back to, you know, the blessing of his dad. Maybe he's thinking about, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know if I'm ever going to see them again. And notice what happens. And he had a dream. Verse 12. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God on this ladder, the, the Hebrew word for ladder here is sulam. You can spell it S-U-L-L-A-M in English or C-U-L-L-A-M. It's, this is the only time this word is used in the Bible. And so scholars are not completely sure, but they think it means something like a staircase. They even think the word in Hebrew has the implications of a highway. And when Jacob goes to sleep that night, he has a dream. And we do know that God does speak in dreams. You may ask why. Well, let's be careful. Let me backtrack for a second. Um, God can and does speak in dreams. This is prevalent in the Old Testament. It, it appears in the New Testament. But he doesn't always. And your dreams don't always mean really anything significant. They can, but I'd be extremely careful with dreams. Most of the time, you just dream about what's been the last thing on your mind, especially if you combined it with a piece of pepperoni pizza. Then you'll have weird dreams, and they, many times they mean nothing. I'd be very careful with dreams, but sometimes God does speak to people in dreams, and you might ask why, because most of the time we're not listening when we're awake. Amen? Mm, I don't know. That was kind of weak, but... So he has a dream and he sees this ladder and this ladder is kind of a freaky thing because this ladder has angels ascending and descending on the ladder. It's almost like an angelic escalator. Up and down they go, down and up they go. And do you know that the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 22 that there are myriads of angels and the language describing angels in the New Testament is there's probably billions of them. And do you know that we get in Genesis 28 an insight into the unseen realm, which, you know, the curtain is pulled back very rarely, but Jacob gets a vision of the reality of how this works and that God is constantly dispatching angels and they're coming down and going up constantly. Angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14. They come to minister to those who will what? Inherit salvation. Jacob is a patriarch. Israel's going to come from the line of Jacob. Multiple angels are keeping a close eye on this dude. I don't know why they didn't bring him a soft pillow. That's a question I have. But anyway, it's for another time. A ladder, angels up and down, down and up. And all of a sudden we get an insight that heaven, please hear me well, is much more connected with this planet than we think. God is involved in people's lives. God is involved in your life. And you say, well, then why am I sleeping on a rock pillow? I don't know. I've got questions like that too. But Jacob is being watched by God because God has a plan for Jacob. And brothers and sisters, God has a plan for you. And angels sometimes are involved in that plan. And so here's a ladder laden with angels. Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, Mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Man, get this picture. God has billions of angels that he instructs constantly, and they descend and ascend and descend and ascend. And plus, he still cares about you. That's pretty cool. 
because he doesn't have to. Do you know that when we get questions about angels and the study of angels, do you know that the evidence is that the only being that's been made in the image of God is us as humans, not even angels? That is incredible. Angels have come to help us. I don't know if any of you have angel stories. I've got one in particular. I don't know if it was an angel. I like to think it was an angel. We're told that some people have entertained angels, what? Unaware. Abraham, for example. We know that the servant um, in 2 Kings had his eyes opened and he saw this huge army and chariots of fire and there are more for us than there are for them, 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. And plus, with this incredible uh, dream that he had, which is really a vision or what we call a theophany, it's God appearing in the dream. Behold, the Lord, look at verse 13, stood above it. That is, God was above the ladder or the staircase. You know, Led Zeppelin, they sang about it, right? I'm not, I'm not going to try. Man, I was thinking about it, but no, I'm not going there. Anyway, I have no idea what they were singing about. But the Bible says there is a stairway, a staircase, an escalator. Now, is it a literal ladder? No. But it is giving us a picture that there is a connection between heaven and earth. And above the ladder, above it all, is God, and God says to Jacob, and I think this is the first time Jacob has ever heard the voice of God. He's gonna have about eight times that God appears to him. He said, I am the Lord, look at verse 13, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Now, wouldn't you think, from what we know of this guy and what he's just done, that the first things that God would say to him would be something like this, Jacob, oh, Jacob, you know, pull up the ladder, never mind. (laughs) No, he didn't, no no rebuke, no correction, no, how could you have done that to your poor brother? Nothing, just a blessing. Do you think that when Jacob went to bed that night, he had some regret? Do you think when he went to bed that night, he thought, you know what, I did, I did Esau wrong. Look, if he's human, he probably did. I mean, we spend a lot of our time, you know, oftentimes we spend our time in regret. And sometimes we have regrets over things we shouldn't regret. We can be our own worst critics. And I, I'm sure that had to be part of what was on Jacob's heart. Maybe Jacob was even saying, you know, my dad talks about God. Grandpa talked about God. I don't know. Where is God? You think he went to bed that night thinking, is Lord, I... Are you here? Do you know what's going on in my life? And he probably felt like a scoundrel. And when you feel like a scoundrel, when you feel regret, when you feel bad about what you did to somebody, you don't feel like you deserve the Lord to appear to you. And if he does appear to you, you usually feel something like this. Okay, go ahead and club me. Go ahead and spank me. I deserve it. And this gives us a picture of how God sees us. God says to him, your descendants... 14 shall also be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, the promised land. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth, what? Be blessed. Here is a reiteration of the covenant promises of God. Verse 15, and he says, behold, I am with you. This is not about a great Jacob. This is about a great God. And your story Brother or sister, tonight, please hear this. Will not be told about a great Michael or a great fill-in-the-blank with your name. It's, the story is going to be about a great God. I don't deserve the blessings that he gives me. He tells me I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, right now. Do I deserve that? No. But he loves me anyway. He says, I'm with you. And he said to the disciples, I'll be with you to the end of the age. In Hebrews, we have a promise that he will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. And he says, I'm going to keep you, 15, wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
I will not leave you until I make good on every single promise I have given you. A.W. Pink says, right down to where the fugitive lay, the ladder came. And right up to God himself, the ladder reached. You know, Jacob may have, that night he might have felt as far from God as one can ever feel. But we can't go on our feelings, you guys. Our feelings are often, you know, leading the train and our feelings are not always the best barometer of facts. Let the facts of the Bible, the promises of God lead the train. Let your feelings be the caboose, not in the front. This is a prayer from Isaiah 64, 1, and it fits well. It says, oh, that you would come down and that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at thy presence. I wonder if Jacob was praying something like that. Lord, I, I pray that you would just show up. We need you in this situation. You know, Isaiah 64, 1 that I just quoted, may I suggest to you that it's probably the key to revival? We should be praying as Americans tonight, oh, that heaven would come down. Oh, that we would experience a revival in the church and a great awakening in America, amen? Because we are teetering, folks. We are teetering. And we need to make up our minds what we want to do. And the cool thing about Jacob is that Jacob's a conniver, man. He's, he's not the best dude on the planet from what we might assess it, but yet God is mighty to save. And so under the title Revival and the Descent of God, Ray Ortland says that Isaiah 64.1 is as good a description of revivals we'll ever find. Revival is God coming down in a special way. God is able to come down and visit us in unusual power. The history of God's people illustrates how God can do this. And Jacob, verse 16, awoke from his sleep. And he said, surely the Lord is in this place. Look at verse 16. And I did not know it. Surely God is in this place. And I didn't realize it. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in a situation in your life and you wondered, God, where are you? How could you ever work in this situation? And then God shows up and he, you see his fingerprints all over it and you're like, Lord, you were there the whole time. <laughs> you ever do one of these? I'm so sorry for my lack of faith. When will I learn? And then you get in the next emergency and God shows up again and you do the same whine that you did before. God was there. When Jacob awoke, he said, God's here. God was here, but I didn't know it. Have you guys seen that? Uh, it's, I think it's a Bible track that says, God is, and then it has N-O-W-H-E-R-E, -E, and you could read it, God is nowhere, or you could read it, God is now here. I guess it all depends on your eyes of faith. And Jacob says, God is here. You know, can God be out in the middle of a desert when you're traveling and you feel like you're junk and you're nothing? And God reiterates a promise to you when you may be filled with regret? Yes, God is everywhere. And he was afraid. Look at verse 17. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This, he says, is the gate of heaven. God is here. And this place will be called Bethel, Hebrew lesson. Bait is the word for house. It's often in English B-E-T, bait or B-E-T-H. And when you see Bethel, L-E-L -E is the name of God. So Beth-El is house of God. When you hear Beth-Lehem, it's house. Lechem in Hebrew is bread, house of bread. And so that becomes, there's a Bethel church. There's Bethel music. That's the idea. And Jacob's saying, God was here. This is the gate. This, the, the, the door's here. Jesus in John 10, 9 says, I am the door. 
The NIV says, I'm the gate. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. How awesome is this place? The beauty is that today, says R. Kent Hughes, the ascended son of man mediates the commerce between heaven and earth. For there's one God and one what? Mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one that mediates. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is what? The life. And no one's coming to the Father except through him. And Jacob's like, this is awesome. What were, where was the word awesome? When did that become big? Was that like the 70s or 80s? It's awesome, man. Jacob started that. <laughs> so Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone there's that pillow again, that he put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on its top. Now you might say, well, what's going on here? Well, Jacob wanted to mark the spot where God did this incredible thing. He didn't want to ever forget it. So he took the stone that had become a makeshift pillow and he put some oil on it. And oil speaks of what? Consecration, to be set apart unto God. Kings were anointed with oil. Um, priests were anointed with oil. It was the setting apart of something. And so he took the rock to mark the spot. And he said, man, I don't want to forget this. And when I'm traveling back through here, I want to remember that God appeared to me. And folks, you and I need to remember when God does something special in our lives. We need to mark the memory. We need to mark it as a, maybe a pivotal moment. Maybe for you it was, a, it was a, a moment where you came to a realization that you needed Christ. Maybe it was a moment where you decided to get serious about God. Maybe it was God showing you his faithfulness in a prayer that you've been praying for a long time. And so he called the name of the place Bethel. That's house of God. Uh, however, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Now here's what's interesting. In Genesis 12, 8, just write this down for your notes. Genesis 12, 8, Abraham moved through this same area. He proceeded uh, to the mountain on the east of Bethel. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Grandpa had an encounter with God in Genesis 12. God had God had uh, spoken to him the covenant that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And Abraham built an altar there. And do you know what some scholars say? They say that grandson probably got his pillow from Abraham's altar. That when Abraham encountered God in Genesis 12 and built the altar and called upon the name of the Lord. And, and there's all kinds of conjecture. And some say the Hebrew means that he was proclaiming the name of the Lord. Some scholars say it means both, that he was calling on God's name, but also proclaiming God's name. But what do you think Grandpa Abraham was doing at Bethel in Genesis 12? Well, God had said to Abraham, in you, how many of the families of the earth will be blessed? All of them. You're going to have these descendants as the stars of the sky. And Abraham's got no children. He's got a barren wife. And Abraham probably knelt before God after that encounter. He built an altar and he said, Oh God, I pray for my son. And I pray for my future grandson. I pray you'll bless them. And do you know that it's quite possible that Jacob trekked through that same place, found that altar, and that altar became his pillow. Wow. Wow. You know, sometimes we're, we pray for things and we don't realize how serious God takes our prayers. We don't realize how many multiple layers God is working. Uh, I know just, you know, some of the details of the story of uh, John Corson's fellowship. What's the place in Oregon, Coach? Applegate Christian Fellowship. And uh, that place where that church ended up, the backstory was that there were women who had been praying over that location for I don't know how many years, but it was, I think it was well over a decade. And John Corson felt a call to go to this nowhere place in Oregon, Applegate, 
and found out that there was witchcraft being practiced in the area or some dark stuff going on. And some women got serious in the town and decided we're just going to start praying that God will do something here. And God called John Corson to that place and that church became, I don't know, thousands and thousands of believers. God's done a mighty work there. And it was all on the basis of prayer and someone making a little altar and saying, oh God, I believe you can do something here. And it may not be through me. Maybe it's going to be through my grandson. Amazing. And so here's this incredible scene. Jacob uh, has this place called Bethel. And Jacob does something next, verse 20, as we wind down. He made a vow. And he said, if, some scholars say you can say, since God will be with me and will keep me on this journey. And I think if is probably more accurate here that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear. And I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone, which I've set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give what? I will give a tenth to thee. Now, there's a couple different ways that commentators take this. One is a positive, and, and they say, well, here's Jacob. He has this incredible dream, this incredible encounter with God, this altar situation and everything, and this is a way that he could respond to God's goodness. And he, So he said, Lord, if this is what you're going to do for me, if you're going to give me clothing and bless me and bring me back home and you're going to be my God, here's what I want to do. I want to give a tenth. A tenth of what? What did Jacob have? I don't know. Did he have anything with him? Was he thinking of the future? Was he making a commitment that, Lord, I'm going to give a portion of what I have, whatever that ends up being, because you've been so good to me? Look, this is not a message about tithing. There was no official tithe at this point. The law came in the book of Exodus. The tithe, technically, there were three tithes for Israel. We get calls on the Bible Answer Show all the time. Tithing for today, right? Need a tithe? Well, for Israel, they gave three tithes. It equaled 23 and a third percent of your income. So if you want to go back to the law, and we would like it if you do, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I'm just speaking from the heart right now. Oh, I'm just kidding. But if you want to go back to the law, one of the tithes was given once every three years. So it ended up to be 23 and a third percent of what you had. You don't want to go back to the tithe. Now, some of you may want to give 25%. And if you do, we want to talk to you after the service. But, but here's the thing. I think this was just, he heard some stories about, about grandpa. And I think this was just a way to say, Lord, I, I just want to give. How many of you have come to that point where you just want to give? Because you know, when you give to the kingdom of God, it's going to last. Moth and rust won't destroy. Thieves won't break in and steal. Everything that you have here eventually is going to rust and burn anyway. Even that motorcycle in your garage, I'm speaking personally now, that I protect, that has the initials HD on threat of death if you go within 10 feet of it, one day it will rust. I've calmed down about the motorcycle. I'm just kidding. But other people say, no, Jacob's kind of doing a, this is not so noble. This is kind of like this. Everybody go back to it. Jacob made a vow. He said, if God will be with me and keep, will uh, keep me on this journey that I take and he'll give me food and, 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 and garments, and, and if I return to my father's house in safety and he protects me, then, then you can, you can be my God. Uh, I just have a few things in the contract I'd like to clarify. This is the negative way to take it. You could be, you could be my God if there's, there's some shoes uh, at this department store I've really been looking at. And we laugh at it, but you know, we do this all the time. You could be my God if you come through with a, uh, it's a short list. It's, it's, a, it's a couple combined Christmas lists actually things that I didn't get from my family. And we start making these conditions on God. And then who becomes God in that equation? Does he only become your God when he's coming through for you? Then who's God? You know, we have these ministries, they go on the air and they say, if you pray according to this formula, 
then God must respond to you. Oh yeah? I don't think so. God is God no matter if he, you make him your God or not. He doesn't move off the throne based upon personal decisions made on the planet. Amen? You can be my God, I, I think. I don't know. Should I give a tenth? Should I not? <laughs> Come on, folks. All right, everybody turn to John 1 and we're done. John 1. All right, so 2,000 years later, through the line of Jacob, there's some stirring going on because there's a, a guy that showed up and John the Baptist telling people that he's the Lamb of God. Be like, what? I think we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. Yeah, I think we found him. So there's all kinds of talk going on. John 1, 43. And the next day, he purposed to go forth into Galilee. John 1, 43, that's Jesus. He found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. John 1, 45. And Philip found Nathaniel. Nathaniel, I have a son named Nathan. His name means gift of God. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Corona? <laughs> I used to say that. Anyway, actually it says Nazareth for the record. And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite in, indeed in whom there is in whom is no what? Guile. And some people have said you could take this. An Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. I'll let you think about that one. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, notice this early pronouncement of who Jesus is. He said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. Loose paraphrase. You ain't seen nothing yet, baby. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. Everybody look at your Bible, verse 51. You shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and what? Descending on the Son of Man. Get this. 2,000 years later, Jesus mentions Jacob's ladder, and scholars believe that when Nathaniel's under the fig tree, maybe he's contemplating the story of Jacob. Maybe, some people think, maybe he's just read the scroll. He's read that passage in Genesis 28. We don't know for sure, but maybe he's thinking about the story. And Jesus references the ladder in Genesis 28, and he says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Get this, Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father through him. Jacob's ladder is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the stairway to heaven, and there's no other way, no other name under heaven given among men by which we, what, must be saved. He is the way. He is the ladder. He is the stairway. He is the highway to God. And God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. And his son was much, had a much better name than the angels. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And God the Father says to the angels of the son, let all the angels of God do what? Let them worship him. You see, in this Old Testament picture, it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is not only Jacob's ladder, he is Michael's ladder. He is God sending down the rescue ladder so I can be with God in heaven. And Jacob is part of the messianic line. And think about this. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. He had a grudge. He was breathing out the threats. And do you know that Esau's grudge was probably inspired by Satan? Because Satan knew if Esau killed Jacob, what would he kill? the line to the Messiah. Do you know that much of world history right now, as you watch all this hatred toward that little country called Israel, do you know that probably most of it, if not all of it, is inspired by Satan? The story of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Rome, Nazi Germany, you name it, the Ottoman Empire, you name it, 
Their hatred toward Israel is, in, is satanically inspired. And Jacob, had Esau killed Jacob, the line of promise would have died, but that wasn't going to happen because Messiah was going to come because God is true to his promises. And Jacob's ladder, Michael's ladder, Pastor Chris's ladder, Sean's ladder, put your name there, is Jesus. And the way you get to God is through the Son. Heaven came down in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's how much God loves us. Father, thank you so much for this incredible picture. It's so real, so human, so like us. <laughs> this family, this dysfunctional family that is the line to the Messiah is amazing. And it gives us hope that even when we mess up, even when we're not who we should be, even when we don't act the way we should, still you're a God that wants to bless. And yet at the same time, Lord, we watch these, this dysfunctional family swim in the consequences. Rebecca paid consequences. Esau, Isaac, Jacob, they all paid a price for trying to do it their own way. And yet you superseded it all because you were doing something above it all. And that was you were providing a way for all of us, people like Jacob and Esau and Rebecca and Isaac and people all through history who could find a way to God through Jesus Christ. Keep your head and heart bowed right now. If you've not met this Savior, he came down for you. He came down to drop that rescue ladder for you. If, if you didn't have that ladder, you'd be lost. There's no way for you to reach up to God. Your sin has separated you. Jesus has become the bridge to God. And his cross, his death on that cross, pays that price, provides that stairway. Trust in him. If you haven't met him, just say, Jesus, I believe that you're the Messiah. I thank you that you came down to save me. I thank you that you died for my sin. Pray it right now if it's you. I thank you that you rose from the dead, that you ascended back into heaven, that you love me. You gave yourself for me. I trust you. I repent of my sin. I receive you as my Lord. Maybe you're a believer tonight and you've been like a Jacob or a Rebecca or Esau. And you're wondering, man, is God gonna bless me? Has this gone too far? No, but now's the time to turn around. Now's the time to come home. And for all the saints here tonight, Father, my, my prayer is for strength, uh, renewed faith, strengthened faith, for healing in areas where they need your touch tonight. I just pray that you'd bless this precious group of people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand?